You can continue those conversations a little bit later. Great that you've started so well, but make sure you take a right as you leave the worship centre and you can continue those conversations over a tea or coffee. Be great. Um, Happy New Year to everyone uh, that I haven't seen and Happy New Year to people joining online as well. It's great to have you here. I was thinking this morning, it is a little bit less than 11 months now until Christmas. Um, So I realised I just divided the room. There are those who are like, Jack, really, we have just recovered from what happened. And there are other people who are like, "Mm, it's time for the Christmas tree to grow up. Am I right? Yeah. All right, anyway, sorry to shock you with that news, but less than 11 months now to go. (laughs) It's not long. All right, so we're going to be looking at John uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11 this morning. And it starts like this. In verse 1 it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So we have a problem right away. So anyone who's been around church for a while knows that if a passage starts with therefore, you have to go back and see what it's there for. But this passage starts with but. So like what on earth is happening there? So I did a little bit of research on your behalf. You're welcome. Um, And this passage in John um, it is a tiny bit awkward because it doesn't necessarily belong where it is in the Bible. It has actually moved around a little bit. In some early manuscripts, it appeared in Luke. Uh, and they were never, like, the, the story is legitimate. I'm not saying it isn't. Um, but they were never quite sure where it fit and in which narrative. So um, it has landed finally in John. Um, but it is a slightly awkward transition between what happens right before uh, and where this story starts. So back in the previous chapter, there is the first half of this sentence. I don't know why they like put that break in where they did Um, but it it starts off with they went each to his own house so they were talking about the leaders that had been meeting planning to trap Jesus and try and arrest him and it says they went each to his own house and then our scripture starts but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a fairly simple story, this, in in a way. There's three main characters. There's Jesus, there's the woman, and there's the religious leaders. So um, on the face of it, it seems quite straightforward, but there's a lot more going on in this story than you might think at first glance. So I've got a few questions for you. Actually, I might pray. 
God, we thank you. We thank you for this word. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, that we are meeting together um, as your family in this place. God, we know that you have something to say to each one of us through this scripture. And God, I pray that we, we open our minds and our hearts to hear what it is that you want to say to each one of us. God, we know it might be different, slightly different for each one of us, what, what it is that you want us to take home from here. But God, I pray uh, that you give us insight and that we will be different because of what you show us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so some questions. Um, the first one, is there a scale of sins, do you think? Is there like good sins and bad sins, little ones that don't quite matter, and then there's the big ones that really, really matter? Um, Hopefully you know the answer to that question. And we will always probably be able to say, no, there isn't a scale of sins. Like, sin is sin is sin. Um, but i just like to challenge our thinking there in does our behaviour play out what we say we think about sin and whether we think there's a scale of sins? Uh, do we think sin is important? Yes, we do. <laughs> this is not rhetorical. You can at least nod if you think... Um, is it the most important thing? Okay, good. I'm getting some heads moving. That's good. All right, we're on the same page, roughly. Um, so we'll be having a look together at what we should and maybe what we shouldn't be taking from this scripture. And one thing that you won't hear me say, I hope, is that sin isn't, isn't important and that it doesn't matter. It does matter to God, and it did in this scripture as well. So we'll take a little look at some events recorded in the Bible uh, to demonstrate how much sin matters to God. So in many ways, the, the whole narrative of the Bible is about, uh, is about sin and the lengths that God's prepared to go to to, uh, to deal with sin, to protect people from sin and ultimately to pay for sin. So in Genesis 6, I haven't, I haven't put this up, um, but uh, we're just going to talk about the story. So in Genesis 6, we read about Noah and the flood. So whether you've been around church a long time or you haven't, you may still know the story of Noah. And when God was prepared to wipe out humanity, he said, enough, I've had enough. Like, you are so bad. I am going to wipe you all out, except for Noah and his family. And he did do that. He flooded the earth, and everyone was gone except for Noah and his family. So that was quite extreme, really, you'd say. Um, he was pretty angry at that point. In Exodus 4, um, when God is calling Moses to go to Pharaoh and talk to Pharaoh and get his people released from slavery, uh, Moses just keeps saying no to God because he doesn't trust God. God's saying, it's okay, I'm going to go with you, I'll give you the words to say, like, don't, just trust me, and Moses just keeps saying no. Um, so God gets pretty angry about that too. And it says in verse 14 of Exodus 4, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And that expression... Um, actually means that the Lord's nose burned hot with his anger. And I think if you are dealing with the creator of heaven and earth, the one who created everything and the one who sustains everything, and you are making his nose burn hot with anger, um, you're in a fair bit of trouble at that point, I think. God was fairly, fairly angry about that. 
Um, also, if you prefer in the New Testament, you might think about Jesus overturning the tables in the temple um, because the people were uh, trying to take advantage of the foreigners and uh, the poor people. And that, that isn't what that part of the temple was meant to be used for. And so Jesus came in and got really angry at what he saw and flipped the tables. Um, Anyway, so just some examples of the fact that sin does matter to God and he does get very angry about it. So back to the text. Uh, The sin was real in this story, in this text, and there's not any question about that. Jesus doesn't say when they came to him, I don't think the lady really did that. He doesn't say that. He just accepts what he was told about it. And the verdict is not really what was up for debate either that she was guilty as charged. The woman doesn't even say, I didn't do it. Um, She is standing there and she is accepting what they say as well. So really it's the sentence or the punishment really that Jesus was challenging. And even more than that perhaps is the hypocrisy of those who were trying to bring it. Actually, this is the main point of the accusers. What did Jesus say the punishment must be? And just to give that some context, they were actually trying to trick Jesus into saying something that was going to get him into a lot of trouble. Um, So the situation was that the the Jewish law uh, said that it was okay to stone a woman for, for doing something like that. Um, But Jewish law was like one thing, and then the occupying force was the Romans, and they had forbidden the Jews from taking matters like that into their own hands. So they were trying to trick Jesus into falling on one side or the other with his decision and whichever one he picked he would go they would go to the others so if he picked yep let's stone her um if he went with the Jewish law then they would have gone to the Roman authorities and say look what he's doing he's in trouble um arrest him um and very likely this whole situation was created just to trick Jesus. That, that, they weren't actually that worried about the woman and possibly even set this up because, bear in mind she was caught in the act, it says. Where was the man? There was a man involved. Where was he? And quite likely they'd set this whole thing up and given him a way of escaping because that, that wasn't really what they were after. So their main goal was to trap Jesus into saying something uh, that that he would regret later and and would get him into lots of trouble. So Jesus answers this trap question in a way that acknowledges the guilt of the woman but makes every person there ineligible to administer that punishment. So clever and so insightful. He makes those present look at their own sin And these men wouldn't have had far to look because they were sinning right now. They were going against the law because they were trying to um, suggest to Jesus that that he stone her, that he he uphold the Jewish law. So he was going against the law that was in place right now. The very predicament that they were trying to put Jesus in was the one that they were actually in themselves. I was thinking that this story seems like a type of our sin We are all guilty, uh, no doubt about that. And we all deserve our punishment, for sure. But Jesus has stepped in for us too and paid for it all. Sin can be tricky, can't it? We sometimes find it easy to point the finger 
about the big ticket ones. Now we said already that there's not a scale of sins and there's no good sins and bad sins, but, but sometimes the way that we behave and the way that we think about things demonstrates that we, we don't actually believe that. There, there are some big ones and there are some small ones, is how we behave. And sometimes we find it easy to stand there and point the finger about some sins in particular. The obvious ones are sex-related and gender-related, probably. And it used to bother me. Like, why do people seize on things like that? Um, And just, like, if you talk to them, that's what they're talking about all the time. Um, And that's their one one thing. And I was like, why do do they not just have that same um, attitude to to all sins? Why, Why do they pick on that one? Um, and I, I came to that it's because they're fairly sure they're not going to do that. They're, they're fairly sure that they're standing on solid ground there. That's not a temptation for them. They don't have a difficulty there. So they're like, that is wrong and you should never do it. And that's, but it's, it's, all, it's all part of the same thing. There is no scale. There is no one sin that you can pick out and say, that's the one right there. And that's what these religious leaders were really doing. They felt like they were standing on really solid ground and they felt like they could stand there and point their finger. You see this on social media sometimes and I have fairly recently seen a a bad example of this where somebody had just put up this thing and it was like, do this, God loves you, you're going to heaven, do that, you're bad, you're going to go to hell. And... Like, there is no context when you do that. When it's like the modern-day equivalent, really, of standing on street corners and just yelling at people. Um, it's really divisive and hurtful. There is no context around that. You can't explain to people what you mean. Um, you're not in relationship with people who are on the receiving end of that. So, actually, you have no right to say it um, to people. It is very, very divisive. And if anything, it moves people a step further away from coming to faith rather than a step closer. But Jesus raises the bar so high on sin. Even looking is enough, he says. Even being angry is enough, he says. In Matthew 5, 21 to 22, if we could pop that one up. Thanks, Joe. Um, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Ha! That's a good one. All right, Matthew 5, 27 to 28. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's really a heart thing for God. He sees your heart and he sees the intentions of your heart. And that is the important thing. In James 2, 8 to 12, which I think I did. Yeah. If you really, it says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, by which it means, you know, um, behaving in a different way to nice people, people that you like, people who are just like you, you you behave a certain way to them and include them and say, you can be part of our group, come to my house. 
um, and then you behave in a different way to people that are not like you, that are maybe a bit more challenging. If you're like, nah, you can stay over there and I'll say hello to you, but that is it. Um, if you show partiality like that, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So how are we feeling now? Have we ever been angry? Maybe we're still good on the big ones. Uh, but if you've spent any time at all coveting your neighbour's ox, or being angry, or looking, then maybe we are all on the same slightly shaky ground. So back to the text. These leaders are looking at the woman and at Jesus from the outside, taking a snapshot and thinking that they understand everything about the situation and making their judgment. So far as the woman is concerned, they are expecting and maybe hoping that Jesus will do the same. Do we do that? Do we point and decide right away? Or do we take time to know the person, understand who they are, understand the complexity of their situation, maybe? Understand the trauma. Trauma is something that we don't understand, not, not proper trauma. We don't understand the mark that it leaves on people's soul when they are trauma, when they've been through real trauma and how that will play out in their behaviours. We don't understand it and we, we don't take time to get close enough to people to find out if that is what they are kind of acting out from. The text doesn't say, but the woman may have been mortified about what had happened and the leaders were likely enjoying the situation that they had constructed. So whose heart really was, um, was bad? Who, whose heart really was the worst? It's just not so easy to tell from the outside looking in. The greatest gift that Jesus gives to this woman is to really see her, to really look at her, and obviously easier for him because he was fully man and fully God at the same time. Um, but the point is that he took time to see her, to see who she was, and then he was able to give her compassion, empathy, care, respect, dignity, all of those things, because he really, really saw her. Jesus does that to us too. He takes time to really, really see us. And we can give that gift to other people too if we take time to know people, to really see them, not just to brush past them or stand from afar and maybe with our arms folded. You can't hug someone with your arms folded. Try. Um, or pointing just from afar saying, I know, I know who you are, I know what you're doing and why you're doing it. We can give that gift to people too. This story could just as easily be described as the leaders caught in hypocrisy, as the woman caught in adultery, as it's more commonly known. It actually f focuses on the powerful mercy which triumphs over the negative judgment of the law, much as resurrection life triumphs over death, and as Jesus triumphs over our less-than-perfect lives but without removing the moral demand. 
Jesus does, after all, say to the woman, go and sin no more. And he does that to us too. So in verse 10 to 11 there, he, he, he says that to her. This isn't meant to be a message of cheap grace, and I hope you're not hearing that. Sin does matter, and we must endeavour, like this woman, to sin no more. Sin is important, and God does mind about it. But it is deeply foundational, I believe, and until we get this part right, this understanding of the depth and reach of God's love and mercy for us, to our very core, we will struggle with all the rest. We'll struggle to know who we are, and we'll struggle to know whose we are. And we'll struggle to share that really with other people around us. Now, I'm not a big fan of uh, supposing, you know, you suppose something about scripture that it doesn't actually say. Um, and uh, my favourite example about this is reading a book once, who was written by a very much smarter person than I am, which is probably not hard. But anyway, um, this book was written about a painting of the story of the prodigal son. And it started well, I have to say, the first chapter was quite good. Um, but bear in mind, the story of the prodigal son was a story that Jesus told. It didn't hap happen, really. He, t he made up a story and told a story to illustrate a point that he wanted to make. Uh, and then, so somebody's taken that story and have made a picture of it. So they painted a picture of it, a beautiful picture, impacted the author of this book so much that he, he, uh, he spent a lot of his life studying it. And he wrote this book about it. And so as we go through the book, it gets less and less helpful to me because he's just, like, he's supposing so many things about a story that Jesus made up that somebody did a painting of that he's now writing a book about. Um, and he's like, you know, the expression on the woman's face in the background of this picture and all of the things that we can learn from that. And I'm like, nah, you have lost me now. Like, that woman didn't exist like that. You know, that face didn't exist and she wasn't really there. It was a story. Anyway, put that book away. One of the few books in my life that I haven't finished, I have to say. Anyway, so I'm going to break my rule now and do some supposing because I read this supposing thing in a, in a book by Pete Gregg, who I really respect. And um, it is based on what we know of the character of Jesus um, in the Bible. So it's about Judas. So if you aren't familiar with the story, Judas is the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And on the night that he betrayed him, um, he took the authorities to where he knew that Jesus would be and he was going to betray him with a kiss. So he said, the one that, you know, the one that I go and kiss, that's the man, that's the one that you need to arrest. So as he did that, in, in I think it's Matthew's Gospel, that it is described that as he starts to do that, Jesus greets him by saying, he knows exactly what he's going to do. He says to him, friend, do what you need to do. And then Judas is just filled with remorse about what he has done and he, he just can't live with that level of pain and remorse in his life. So he actually takes his own life because he just, he just can't go on. But the supposing is, suppose G a Judas didn't take his life. Suppose he'd been able to make it through just that one weekend uh, until Jesus was resurrected again. Suppose he had been able to meet him again. 
Again, if you're joining us online, this is not in the Bible. I'm supposing right now, <laughs> making up a story just that I find helpful and it was a great picture for me. So, so suppose they met again as, as Jesus had been resurrected. And you can just imagine how Judas might have felt at that point. He, he would have been, as he approached him, he would have been hesitant, unsure. What was Jesus going to do? They both knew what had kind of happened. Um, but as they approached each other, you can be absolutely certain that Jesus would have said, friend, again. You know he would, because we know his character. You know he would call him friend, and that would give uh, Judas all uh, the acceptance and the love that he needed to be able to say to him finally, Lord. And that, that it, they just would have been in relationship again with each other. So here's the thing. It would have been true for Judas if that had happened, if all that supposing had really happened. It would have been true that Jesus would have looked at him and called him friend. And it is true for us too that no matter what, no matter what we've done, no matter the depth of our betrayal, whether it's a, you know, a, a kind of separate thing or whether, whether it is a deep, dark betrayal that we have done towards Jesus, that he would treat us the same he would come to us and say, friend. As soon as we turn around, he's right there saying, friend, again. And that is because Jesus' heart towards us and towards Judas would have been unchanged. And that was the, that was the thing that got me in this story, that Jesus' heart is unchanged. You can't do anything that's going to make that heart change. He always is going to love you back. He is always going to call you friend. I've just never seen that that way before. Maybe you all have. Maybe it's just me. Um, but I just, yeah, I just had this clarity and this realization that that is how he feels towards me. That it doesn't matter what I have done in the past, doesn't matter what I am going to do in the future. That he will always look back at me and love me and call me friend. So I'll get the band back up if that's okay. Thanks, band, for being accommodating of my song change request earlier in the week. Appreciate it. Um, so I was thinking that um, last week we had a room full of young people here who'd been at summer camp for three days, and uh, they would, we had our last session of summer camp here. We were all a part of it. It was great. And you could just feel the energy in the room. You could feel the change that had happened in the young people's lives. Um, and it was really, really exciting. So that had been because they had taken time aside to focus on God, to worship him and spend time in his presence. And that changed them, that they came back different. So I don't know who you identify most with in this story, whether you are more like the woman, do you think, caught in the act of being less than holy, or more like the religious leaders, ready to point and accuse. Take some time now to look inside your heart and see what's really in there. Let Jesus have a look too. He can see it anyway. But invite him in. It's different. And you've got nothing to fear. I was thinking about the religious leaders. Even they weren't kind of 
It's over for you. It's the end. He's pretty much said, go and have a look at yourselves, uh, which would be helpful to them, right? Like they could go and have a look, and it, it sort of seems like they were sorrowful as they went away and maybe, maybe would have had a look in their heart at, at what was going on in there. Let Jesus in and have a look. You look too. I was reading um, a poem in our 24-7 prayer room the last time uh, that I was in there. There was this book of poems in there and um, quite unexpectedly, as I was reading it, there was just a line that hit me and it was just a, like a whole kind of list of the things that God is towards us and the things that he isn't towards us. It was just this description really of, of God's heart towards us. And there was this one line which said, he's not disgusted. And I had this like visceral reaction to this and I was just like, what on earth is going on there? He's not disgusted with me. And that surprised me. And I, so I spent some of my time looking into what, what that was about. Well, I didn't know that I thought that, but as I read those words, I thought, oh, okay, so there's something there, and I need to go and have a little look at that. I need to go and sort that out. And I spent some of my prayer time looking into that. And you might, might need to do something similar too. You might have a similar sort of reaction when you look in your heart. Maybe you've never heard before that God loves you, imperfect you, with all your flaws, he loves you just as you are. Take some time to consider that, maybe during this song. One of my favourite English speakers says uh, something like, um, God loves you just the way you are, but he's far too nice to leave you like that. And that, it's a British word, nice. It, it means so much more than just nice. He is far too compassionate to leave you like that. He is far too loving to leave you like that. He is far too generous to leave you like that. God is far too nice to leave you right where you are, but he loves you right where you are right now. So as this song um, starts, we can start if you want. I'm nearly there. Let this be your summer camp. So the young people had three days to spend time in God's presence and to worship him, to learn about him. And I'm, I don't know how long this song goes for, maybe five minutes, I don't know. It's going to be condensed, but I believe in you people, you can do it in five minutes. If you honestly take this time, leave everything else aside and just spend this time in his presence. This song's personal, which is why I asked for it. The words are really personal. So let the words be your prayer and let God minister back to you during this time. Come back to him if you need to. You know that he wants you to. And you know that he will really look at you and he will really see you and he'll call you friend and you'll be free to respond to him, Lord. Let's worship. <laughs>